Welcome back to the program. We are told almost from childhood that we have a legal system and a government of laws and not of men. Yet it is a system created by man and subject to the biases, frailties, and inherent actions of human behavior. Yet from such a system, we often dispense the most draconian of punishment in the name of all of us. At a time when even members of the Supreme Court of the United States talk of the Founders' intent and originalism, a whole body of modern scientific evidence suggests that we need to be looking at our criminal justice system in whole new ways. That in short, we need to bring creative destruction to one of the foundations of a free society. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Adam Benferrato. He's an associate professor of law at Drexel University, a graduate of Yale and Harvard Law School. He served as a federal appellate law clerk and an attorney at Jenner and Block. And it is my pleasure to welcome Adam Benferrato here to talk about his new book, Unfair, The New Science of Criminal Justice. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's great to have you here. One of the things you talk about in a fundamental way is this idea that that our legal system, our criminal justice system today, is really based on an inaccurate model of human behavior. Talk about that. So it's not terribly surprising. After all, our legal system has been built up over uh, centuries and really millennia uh, during a large, you know, a large time period where they, there was no access to scientific evidence about how humans really behave. So in each chapter of this book, I'm really interested in contrasting the conventional stories, uh, what we might call the myths about how different legal actors, judges, jurors, uh, detectives, witnesses make decisions and where things go wrong with what the latest evidence from psychology and neuroscience has to say. What kind of understanding was there when you look at this from a historical perspective in terms of those that, that created the foundations, the underpinnings of our current criminal justice system, what did they understand about the inherent bias of judges, of juries, of witnesses, and how that would play into the system? Well, I think that they operated with the best you know, uh, uh, information they had at their disposal, and that was largely anecdote, um, you know, common sense notions about what deceit looks like, how memory works, uh, what leads people to commit crimes. Um, and you can see, you know, if you take a, a subject like judges, um, I think the notion with respect to judges for a very, very long time has been that uh, basically judicial bias is subject to introspection and control. Basically, you can tell if you are biased and you make an active choice to be either a, you know, umpire judge who just calls balls and strikes or an activist judge. Uh, on the other hand, and you know that has that that belief system has really informed how we you know address judicial bias, which is that you know our codes of judicial ethics say things like, well, you know, you shouldn't accept bribes, you shouldn't uh, you know hear cases when your wife is representing the client. I mean, this is all about this idea that you know it's subject to introspection and control. I know that my wife shouldn't appear before me, and if I allow that to happen, then uh, I am biased. Now, what the latest research from psychology has to say is that all judges are biased, and they're often biased in ways that are beyond their conscious awareness or control. So, you know, one of my favorite uh, experiments in the book looks at this question of, uh, you know, the, the decision whether to grant um, someone parole. And so the researchers looked at real parole boards in Israel, and, you know, 
I'm a criminal law professor, the things that I would have told you would determine the outcome would have been the seriousness of the offense and whether the person uh, reformed themselves while uh, incarcerated. What the researchers found, though, was the single most important factor was just the time of day when the individual happened to appear before the parole board. If they came first thing in the morning, that was a very, very good time. They were very likely to get parole. If they came right before the first break in the day, their chances of being granted parole were very, very low. And again, the judges had no idea at all that this was happening. It was happening beyond their you know, awareness. And I think that's uh, why we have to be particularly concerned um, about what the latest research is, is saying, because it doesn't fit with our conventional narratives. It's interesting, even within the concept of judges being the umpires, calling balls and strikes, as as Chief Justice Roberts even talked about in his confirmation hearings, that even in baseball, there is a certain bias that is built in. There is a certain perception that is built in that is not always objective. Yes, that was one of, you know, the the funniest things as I was doing research was I was very interested in how this uh, conception of the judge, which has now really been ingrained in the United States. If you, you know, have your Senate confirmation hearing, you pretty much have to say, I'm going to be an umpire, uh, justice. Now, the really interesting thing is, well, there's research saying that judges are biased, but what about referees? Well, there's a whole lot of research, which has been, you know, developed over the last 10 years, which show all of the different interesting um, biases that referees have. So it's not just, you know, uh, privileging teams dressed in red across different sports. It's not just being biased by the home team. It's things like calling more fouls in soccer on the taller of Mm -hmm. two players. It's about uh, smaller strike zones uh, for um, uh, white batters, or or rather black batters than white batters. Um, And all of these biases also, just like with judges, are operating beyond, you know, the the conscious awareness of the people who are making these calls. We all have to think of it also in terms of of life and business and, and people that get interviewed and hired for jobs, that there are things like how they dress that's an impact, how they look, what they're, the tenor of their voice, all of those things enter into the equation. They, they absolutely do. And I think that's one of the major themes of the book is that well-intentioned people um, who have every incentive to get things right and to treat people fairly can be deeply uh, unfair in their actions. And that has to do, you know, if you look at something like racial bias. In the United States, especially with, you know, the last several months of incidents um, involving police officers and, and uh, young African Americans, um, there's a notion that, you know, the problem is bigots. It's racial animus is the problem in our police departments. Um, And I think that the research suggests that actually the major problem is implicit racial bias. It's people who have been exposed to pervasive stereotypes that link the concepts of blackness and crime and violence. And these stereotypes then inform real world behavior. When a police officer is deciding whether to go to their gun, they are more likely, and this is backed up by experimental research, they're more likely to see an ambiguous object in the hands of a black man as a gun when it actually turns out to be a wallet or a cell phone than they are when it's uh, a white person. And this obviously translates across all of our interactions. So that 
leads, you know, I think judges to have higher bails for African American uh, uh, people who come before them, and that translates to medicine. Doctors tend to uh, use in in research studies tend to uh, use less effective interventions with black people than with white people. We know in hiring um, resumes that have black names on them, stereotypically black names versus stereotypically white names are less likely to call, be called back for interviews. And again, I think the, the notion that these problems are caused by uh, racial hatred uh, is false. I think these are often uh, these disparate impacts are the result of well-intentioned people who have watched the same television shows and evening news programs which create these damaging stereotypes. And while there are so many recent examples, the one thing that kind of stood all of this on its head that really made everybody, I, I would argue, sit up and take notice about the flaws in this system is going back to the OJ trial and the way that played out in the public's mind. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. And there were there were a bunch of very interesting dynamics um, going on there. Uh, I think one of them is that this notion um, related to jurors. Again, you know, just as we have stereotypes and ideas about uh, judges and police officers, we also have ideas about um, jurors. And uh, one of the ideas about uh, jurors is that, you know, people who uh, uh, kind of agree with us um, are right and people who disagree with us are wrong. We tend to believe that we see the world objectively as it actually is and that anyone who is similarly objective will see things exactly the same way. And when they don't, we look to write off their perspective. We attack them uh, interpersonally. And one of the things I think that the, the research suggests is that actually people's perceptions of reality are shaped by their backgrounds and experiences. And to say that, you know, one uh, outcome or one set of facts, there is an objective reality out there, is often incorrect. It actually turns out it's all based on the eyes of the beholder. Um, and I think in part that can help us understand um, what happened in the OJ trial and, and in a lot of other cases um, out there when you know our instincts are, well, those jurors were just stupid. Well, it's just possible that their backgrounds and experiences led them to see a different set of events than what the rest of us saw. There is this misperception that has existed out there that somehow trials, criminal trials in particular, are a search for the truth. And that kind of goes against the whole adversarial nature of the process itself. Yeah, so one of my you know major focuses of reform in this book is our adversarial system. Um, I actually think you know certainly when I went to law school, it was held up as you know this the great savior of the truth. This is how uh, you reach uh, an accurate understanding of what happened in in the criminal context. Is you allow uh, a, de- a robust defense and you allow a robust prosecution, and they battle it out, and that's how you get to the Right and um, and in doing research, uh, you know, really since I became a law professor and even in law school, um, I started to think that 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 really um, wasn't supported. That that notion of the benefits of the adversarial system, I think, often it creates this damaging us versus them uh, dynamic, which can actually be uh, behind. Uh, dishonesty. So one of the chapters in the book, I look at prosecutorial misconduct, and I try to understand, well, why 
do some prosecutors, um, you know, not hand over potentially exculpatory evidence when someone is, you know, facing the death penalty, right? And the, the blood sample doesn't match the defendant. Why? You know, the Constitution says you've got to turn over that evidence to the defense. Why do some prosecutors not turn it over? I think the cause has to do with our adversarial system largely, which provides rationalizations for not taking that action. And what we know from the broad research on uh, dishonest behavior and cheating more generally is that whether people take uh, actions like this largely depends on their ability to come up with justifications for uh, what they're doing. And with respect to prosecutors, it's very easy for them to come up with reasons why this is the right decision. So part of that has to do with all of the different people, uh, interest groups that they are representing and the potential costs they see in handing over this information. Well, you know, I know that this guy is guilty and if I turn this over, right, it's just going to, you know, confuse the jury and I'm going to be letting down the victim. I'm going to be letting down the victim's family. I'm going to be letting down the detectives who worked this case. I'm going to be letting down my coworkers, even my family who's depending on me, right, to be the breadwinner and to move up the career chain. And suddenly that truly uh, immoral, in my opinion, action when a man's life is on the, the uh, you know, in the, in the mix um, to withhold that information suddenly starts to seem more justified. And the person thinks, well, you know, even if they didn't commit this crime, I'm sure they're guilty of some other crime. And I think that the adversarial system just feeds into that and make, facilitates that kind of damaging thinking. In many ways, it starts even earlier in individuals that, that come out of law school and some who decide they have the mindset to be prosecutors and some with the mindset to be defense attorneys within the criminal system. And, and there's a certain built-in bias to that itself. I think I think that's right. I think there is sort of a self-selection mm -hmm. uh, notion here. But I think a lot could be changed simply by reconceiving what the goal of prosecutors' offices are. Um, and I think that currently the focus, if you look around the country, it's all about gaining convictions. It's, mm -hmm. it's your body count, for lack of a better word. How many people have you convicted this year? How many jury trials have you won? And that's a very, very uh, worrisome frame for the role of the prosecutor. I think we could make a lot of progress by simply reshaping that role into something that's focused on achieving justice. So if a prosecutor came into an office and was told, your goal is to ensure that all guilty people receive their just desserts and your goal is to ensure that all innocent people are found innocent and no one who is innocent ever ends up in a prison cell. With that frame, I think that would really drastically cut down on prosecutorial misconduct. And the really cool thing is that some jurisdictions are already moving in this direction. So in Dallas County, um, the, the uh, you know, uh, DA down there decided, you know, we need to set within the prosecutor's office, we need to set up our own uh, uh, integrity unit, which is focused on going back and looking for where we made mistakes before. To me, that's entirely logical that that would be something that the government would be committed to, reducing our error rate. But even within that frame, 
is there then a bias with respect to punishment? Because you may have a perfect, even within a perfect system with respect to guilt, there is the issue of punishment that plays out, as you talk about, with its own inherent biases. Yes, yes. So I think, you know, when you talk to people, and certainly I ask my, you know, criminal law students, why do we punish? Why do we send people to prison? Um, why do we give people very harsh sentences? Why do we have the death penalty? And the majority of students tend to focus on what would be referred to as utilitarian, consequentialist uh, uh, sort of notion. So the idea that it's all about making our world a safer place. We need to incapacitate dangerous people. We need to deter other would-be offenders. And What's really interesting, I and uh, uh, my colleague, Jeff Goodwin, who's a cognitive psychologist at Penn, received a National Science Foundation grant uh, a few years ago to do some experimental research about why people punish. And what we found was this notion that it's all about making our world safer actually isn't true. A lot of the time, we may be driven by retribution, this more basic desire for payback. And I think that helps explain some of the seemingly worst and uh, most unexplainable elements of our system. So our tolerance, for example, for uh, endemic rape within our prisons, um, our tolerance for very, very harsh punishments that don't actually work very well. So solitary confinement, very harsh sentences that we lock people up for a very long time, there's not very good support that those are effective in deterring. If you look at our recidivism rates, even though we lock people up for much longer than the rest of the world, our recidivism rates are still extremely high, 60% in some states. Um, that's a sign that what we're doing um, isn't working. And I think the starting point is really understanding that Part of the problem may be that we are driven by this basic desire for payback that's not terribly rational. And that's why we can say, well, you know, children don't have the same minds as adults, so they deserve to be processed in uh, a juvenile justice system. And yet, we end up prosecuting many, many juveniles in the adult system and treat them extremely harshly. How do those things both work? Well, our underlying retributive motives may be undermining our values. One of the things that you point out, and this is a distinction with, with a fine difference, but an important one nonetheless, is in terms of preventing crime, that penalties don't work as well as the perception that somebody's going to get caught. Yeah. So when we think about deterrence, our mindset really for the last several decades has been um, whenever we are experiencing an increase in crime or we want to cut down on the current level of crime, all we need to do is just add a few years onto the sentence. And that's why if you look at you know certain crimes that don't even carry uh, a criminal sentence in other countries, carry, you know, five, ten years in prison in the United States, um, and even things that like three strikes laws, right? The idea that what we need to do is at some point if someone's committed three offenses, we need to actually lock them up forever. That's the way uh, to cut down um, on this behavior. And what the research on deterrence suggests is that that's actually very ineffective. It's not only extremely costly, it's very ineffective at reducing reoffending. What's far more effective is increasing the perception that someone will be caught and prosecuted. 
right? So how do you do that? Well, you put more police officers on the ground. When someone is thinking about burglarizing a house, what's going to keep them from doing that is the thought that if I do this, I will definitely be caught and prosecuted. It's not I thinking about how long I'm going to be locked up. It's the thought of I will be caught and prosecuted. And that's why it's just a lot more in terms of resources shifting towards law enforcement and away, away from incarceration. It's interesting where science comes down in all of this, because in many ways, as we started to talk about at the outset, it's scientific information that tells us really about human behavior today and better understanding of psychology and neuroscience and all the things that go along with it. But there are people out there that will tell you that it is science and forensics and, and, and all of the scientific data that's available today that will, will cause them to argue that it makes the system more foolproof. And that's not true either. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's all about how we handle the science. Um, I am a firm proponent in evidence-based justice. We have evidence-based medicine, and we have increasingly evidence-based business practices where business practices are being determined by collecting data and analyzing that data and running experiments. I think we need the same approach for law. But we also have to always understand that our current science isn't infallible. And part of um, you know bringing evidence-based uh, justice into being is understanding that as the science develops, we have to change things. We have to be open to changing our processes over time to make them better. One of the areas that's actually, you know, um, concerning to me is our faith in forensic analysis. So we tend to think that, uh, you know, fingerprint analysis, DNA analysis are cut and dry, that there is no room for biases to enter in. And research on confirmation bias suggests that these areas are not immune at all. And so someone who is a, a lab technician who's deciding whether a particular fingerprint matches um, a fingerprint in a database um, in research studies can be affected by knowledge that that particular fingerprint comes from someone who's already signed a confession or someone who an eyewitness has already picked out of a lineup. And again, that's one of the reasons that I think adopting better scientific processes here, blind testing approaches, which are largely used in uh, the medical field, could make a big, uh, big difference. You know, we've talked about this from the point of view of, of the criminal. The other side of this that you talk about in Unfair is this idea that all victims are not equal in the criminal justice system. Yeah, so I think, you know, that's really where I start the book, uh, is thinking about, you know, the, the, the beginning of many cases is finding a victim. And I discussed this particular case um, in the book uh, involving, it took place a number of years ago in Washington, D.C., a very nice uh, neighborhood. And a man, Jerry, you know, comes out of his uh, house. It's a winter night. Um, and he sees a man lying on the ground. He goes up to the man and the man's unable to speak. He's kind of sitting up and he keeps pitching back, hitting his head. So Jerry has his wife go in, call 911. A few minutes later, a uh, fire engine pulls around the corner. And as soon as the firefighters get out, the man on the ground starts to vomit. One of the firefighters says, up. Oh, I smell alcohol. This is a drunk. And so when the police arrive, 
they don't do anything. They kind of keep to the periphery. After all, it's just a drunk. And the same thing happens when uh, the uh, EMTs pull around the corner. They kind of put the guy back in the uh, back of the ambulance without really doing any additional tests. They don't take him to the closest hospital as is required. They take him to one that's a little bit more convenient for, the, for them to run some errands. And at the hospital, the man is just left in the hallway to sleep it off. Again, after all, he's just a drunk. Well, that's how everything is going until a nurse notices that the man is breathing in a very strange way. She gives him a sternum rub. He demonstrates the behavior not of someone who is an alcoholic or homeless drunk, but rather someone who has a bad head injury. And so what happens in this particular case? Why? Well, this man ends up dying. And it turns out this is no drunk. This is a luminary of Washington, David Rosenbaum, a New York Times award-winning reporter who had had dinner with his wife just around the block, had gone out for a walk, and had been jumped by two guys who hit him in the head uh, with a bar and robbed him. And what this shows to me is that, you know, we can quickly sum people up based on the color of their skin or, you know, the smell on their breath or what they're wearing. And that initial summation of the victim sticks with them often throughout the entire course of a case and completely determines the trajectory. And that ultimately can determine whether someone re receives justice or, in this case, injustice. Um, and this, again, this is a type of, you know, tunnel vision confirmation bias where once we have labeled someone, we view that person and interpret new evidence in line with what we already believe to be true. And we disregard anything that seems to conflict with that. In this case, once that label had been attached by the firefighter, everyone sort of viewed the facts through that lens. And that was really, really problematic. There was a lot of evidence there that would have suggested that actually this man was the subject of a robbery. His back pocket had been ripped out, for example. All of which brings us to the idea of what we can do to begin to change the current system in a way that begins to tease out some of these biases. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, the starting point, as I mentioned, was embracing evidence-based justice. I think we have to start by saying we need to build more realistic models of how police officers behave, why people commit crimes, how witnesses' memories work. I think that's the starting point. I think the next approach is then to think about ways that we can actually uh, reduce our reliance on faulty human perceptions, decision-making uh, processes. And I think there's a lot of things that we can do right now. One of those things would be with respect to eyewitness identifications. We don't treat memory evidence with the care that we treat other trace evidence, like a blood-stained handkerchief or something like that. We need, when the police officers bring an eyewitness in, they need to be treating that person with the notion that memory is fragile, malleable, easily altered. And I think that that type of mindset would lead them to change identification procedures in a number of ways. Um, and I think the same thing with in respect to interrogations. We need to rely more on automatic protocols which avoid human fallibility. One of the things you talk about is even the idea of virtual trials. 
Absolutely. Now, this is, you know, in the same time that I, I'm offering a lot of things that we can do today, I think it's important to be thinking about what our criminal justice system ought to look like 50, 100, 200 years in the future. And I think where we are going is thinking about radical ways that we can reduce some of these biases that I've already discussed. So if it turns out that jurors and judges can be swayed by, say, the attractiveness of a witness, we know that witnesses who are more beautiful are more likely to be believed. If jurors and judges can be swayed by the fact that a defendant isn't making eye contact or his hands are shaking on the witness stand, even though we know those factors, demeanor evidence, aren't good ways to tell whether someone's lying. If jurors and judges can be swayed by the defendant's skin color, I think we ought to think about ways that we can make jurors and judges blind to who these people actually are. And the idea here is if we move to a virtual space with avatars in the place of flesh and blood human beings, we could get people to focus on what they're supposed to focus on, not the bombastic style of the prosecutor, not the color of his tie, but rather on the law and the facts. And I think this could bring additional benefits in terms of reducing the psychological strain uh, entailed in providing in-court testimony. Um, we know that in rape prosecutions, one of the reasons that they are so difficult is that victims often refuse to testify because they don't want to be in the same room as their attackers. Um, I think it could also be a great way to further standardize justice. I think all uh, uh, the space of the courtroom could be standardized across jurisdictions and across trials. And one of the real benefits here is that we could actually record trials beforehand so that um, jurors, you know, when an objection was made to particular evidence, um, that evidence would never appear before a jury and could never bias uh, those jurors as is currently the case could get to the point, though, that we eliminate even the jury system as it is now and kind of crowdsource the outcomes. Again, I think we need to think outside the box, not for tomorrow, right? For tomorrow, we need to focus on these smaller scale tweaks to how we're conducting eyewitness identifications, how we do interrogations, how we use police cameras and squad cars. But I also think we need to always be thinking broadly. All of the other industries, the automotive industry, uh, space technology, medicine, people think broadly and widely and creatively about solutions to problems. Within law, we confine ourselves to these very narrow, narrow uh, uh, windows, and I think that's a real mistake. So I think, yes, should we think about whether it would make sense to move towards uh, crowdsourcing of certain aspects of our criminal justice system? Yes, I think we should think about that. Should we think about potentially replacing jur jurors in certain aspects with expert panels? I think so. An example would be with respect to the insanity defense. I don't think it makes a lot of sense to bring in, you know, people who are experts in mental illness, who have PhDs, who've worked studying uh, people who uh, have violent uh, tendencies for decades, and then say to jurors, well, you listen to these people, and you can decide whether to believe them or not. It's all up to you. So if you want to listen to, you know, this, this pointy-headed guy, um, you can, and if you want to disregard everything he says, you can do that too. 
I don't think that makes any sense. I think in that area, we ought to allow the experts in mental health issues to tell us whether someone qualifies for the insanity defense. That seems uh, smart to me. And finally, how should we be thinking about all of this in the context of a system that has tremendous economic pressures, tremendous time pressures, a criminal justice system that's heavily overburdened, that leads to the kind of plea bargaining that we see so much of? How does this fit into that reality, that framework? So with respect to plea bargaining, um, I think that we need to move away from it. Um, Now, the most common defense of plea bargaining is not that it is a good, fair system. It's simply that we cannot offer full trials to everyone. Mm -hmm. I think that is a terrible, terrible excuse, Um, and I think it shouldn't stand. If it costs money, well, let's invest more money. And if it costs too much money, guess what? Maybe we shouldn't be locking so many people up particularly for uh, uh, nonviolent drug-related offenses. If it's costing too much, then maybe we should invest elsewhere. Maybe we should invest our money um, at the beginning of the process, not the beginning of the criminal justice process, at the beginning of the causes of crime. So invest more in schools, invest more in prenatal care, invest more in neighborhoods. I think if we really want to think outside the box in terms of how we make our society safer, it's going to have to really be a major shift from prisons and trials to avoiding the problems before they even begin. Adam Benferrato, his book is Unfair, The New Science of Criminal Injustice. Adam, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.